everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. So I think we can all agree last week's episode was a bit of a doozy. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders are one of those cases that are truly unforgettable. A lot of folks who have talked to me about the episode have mentioned to me that this is a case that they never heard of, but at the same time I did have a few folks from around that area tell me that it was extremely well known there. So while it may not be known from like an international standpoint like some of the other unsolved cases that we've covered, you can really see that it has left its mark in and around that area. It's definitely made its mark on me, I'll tell you that much. It's it's a fascinating mystery. So in case you haven't figured out by now, this is part two of a two-part series. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I have no clue why you're here. So go catch up on that and meet us back here ASAP. And for those of you who have listened to the episode, you already know that this is one of those cases that is truly the subject of nightmares. And we talk a lot about just horrifying topics here, so for us to say that, I think really means something. Well, and apparently we aren't alone in thinking that, because we had more of you reach out and let us know how horrifying this case was to you, uh, more than we have any of our other episodes. And you know what helps me when this kind of stuff starts to like really get at me? What's that? Closure. Right, right, yeah, of course. Learning everything I can and then putting the case away in the back of my mind and I know a lot of you feel the same way too. So this might be a little extra rough because this case doesn't really provide any closure. That's a good point. So today we will be discussing more of the investigation and the attempts to find the Texarkana Phantom and we'll be going over more of the response of the press. And like with all of the unsolved cases that we've covered, we have some suspects that might really get you thinking, as well as one that many experts agree could have most likely been the killer. It's one of those things where you read about one suspect and you almost convince yourself that it couldn't have been anyone else and then you move on to the next suspect to find evidence that it could have been them. Some of these are really solid suspects, and that, on top of everything else that we discussed last week, really gives us a glimpse into what made this case so difficult for them to solve. And as always, at the end of the episode, we're going to share our thoughts about who we think it could have been, as well as ask for yours. And it really makes you wonder what kind of person could have been capable of committing four heinous attacks like this. Who killed Pollyanne Moore, Richard Griffin, Betty Jo Booker, Paul Martin, and Virgil Starks? Not to mention the attacks on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry, and of course Katie Starks, who the Phantom did not want left alive, or at least that was how he made it seem. Alright, so let's get into it. When it comes to the investigation regarding the suspects and the police, a man named Manuel Trezaza's Lone Wolf Gonzalez stood out the most. He was the captain of the Texas Rangers, and he became the public face of the investigation. He was the one who did most of the interviews and spoke most often with the public. He was actually somewhat unliked by the press and was criticized for being a showman. It was also alleged on numerous occasions that he took credit for the work of other officers during his many press conferences and that he liked the attention he got from the reporters, specifically attractive female reporters. And interestingly enough, five years after the murders happened, he moved to Hollywood to pursue a career in the entertainment industry. Like, that's a big jump from yeah. career to career. Mm -hmm. So Lone Wolf said that he and his officers were dealing with, quote, a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities. He also called the murders clever and baffling. At one murder scene, he said, This killer is the luckiest person I have ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. He also reported to the public that the killer was someone who was good with a gun and was intelligent. I'm for 
I'm all for giving the public an accurate profile and description of the suspect, but this really just seems like he was almost praising the killer. Perhaps there was some kind of psychological strategy to this, but based on what we know about Old Lone Wolf, I'm thinking probably not so much. Right, because I mean, he's going off and he's saying, oh, the killer is lucky. And he's, he's sneaky, intelligent. Clever. Yeah, and he's, he, he's, it's kind of wild because he's basically saying, yeah, this guy is so smart that he's outwitting all of us. Absolutely. And you know? honestly, whoever did this probably loved that. Probably. All of these press conferences and everything led to the arrests of over 400 people, many false reports, and a lot of confusion. Last week, we asked you to remember the missing saxophone. Betty Jo Booker had played her saxophone on the night of her murder, and at the time the bodies were discovered, it was nowhere to be found. This attack occurred on April 14, 1946. Just a couple of weeks later, on April 27th, a man walked into a music store in Corpus Christi, Texas. He wanted to inquire about selling a saxophone that he had. Just to make it simple, because we have no clue what this guy's name actually is, or was, I suppose, we're just going to refer to him as Saxophone Guy. So when Saxophone Guy was asked questions about the saxophone that seemed pretty routine, he became evasive, and eventually he ran out of the store. This suspicious interaction was reported to the police, and they arrested the man and took him in for questioning. They didn't find a saxophone, but they did find a bag of dirty clothing. Upon further inspection, they saw that it was covered in blood. They continued to question the man, but unfortunately, they didn't have enough evidence to hold him on, and he was eventually cleared as a suspect after being questioned over the course of several dates. Not much is known about who this man was or what ended up happening to him. Betty Jo Booker's saxophone was finally found six months after her body was discovered. Now, what makes it strange was that the saxophone was found in an underbrush that was quite close to where they found her body. We mentioned before that the crime scenes were essentially walked all over by both detectives and curious onlookers, and this brings up two questions. So, question number one. Was the saxophone somehow missed by everyone who was present at the crime scene? While they were understandably focused on finding Betty Jo herself, the saxophone was something that was actively searched for over the course of months. I can't be the only one who finds that extremely unlikely. I mean, yes, it wasn't exactly in plain sight or anything, but with the amount of people that were out there looking, I find it hard to believe that a saxophone that close to the body could have been missed. I mean, a saxophone is not a small instrument. They're made of brass, I'm pretty sure, and they're bright and shiny, so it wouldn't be an easy item to hide. I feel like it had to have been pretty much buried to go unnoticed by all these people that were combing the area for Betty Jo. So that brings us to the other question. Was the saxophone placed there long after the bodies had been discovered and the crime scene was no longer actively being watched? I mean, they do say that the suspect often returns to the scene of the crime. Exactly. So what's more likely? That a saxophone somehow got missed during a crime scene investigation? Or that someone had the saxophone, tried to sell it, and became paranoid that they would get in trouble, so they buried it. And of course, that doesn't mean that this person had to have been the killer. Maybe they just found a random saxophone and tried to sell it. When the store owner questioned them about it, they could have realized that it wouldn't have been as easy as they thought to sell it, so they freaked out and took off. And we have to remind you that there was essentially no physical evidence left behind by the killer. Plus, it was 1946, so they didn't have all the technology that we have now. 
but they had enough where if they had physical evidence, it would have been much easier to rule out suspects. So could saxophone guy have been the phantom or was he just some random dude who thought he could make a few bucks by selling this saxophone that he found? It's hard to say, isn't it? Seriously, like we mean it when we say the suspect list is wild. There's so many people that were looked at that just made a lot of sense in their own ways. This is one of those cases where you need a cork board and red strings to keep it all connected because it really does get complicated. And what could make things more complicated than a former classmate of one of the victims straight up confessing to the murder in his suicide note. This brings us to Henry Booker Tennyson. Folks knew him as HB or Duty. While he was not related to Betty Joe Booker, he was a classmate of hers. They played together in the school band. So Betty Joe, as we know, played the sax while Henry Booker played the trombone. Something important to note is that they were not friends, just classmates. So Duty is one of those <laughs> like 1940s, 1950s style nicknames that I just don't get. <laughs> like, isn't Duty poo? Oh my god. Like, I, as you all know, I'm a curious lady and this honestly made me think, so I looked it up. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but literally everything I found told me that Duty just means poop. Like, oh, that's my pal poop. Like, I don't understand why I always find a way to talk about poop, but this, like, made me think because I just saw the name and I, I can't take I it. Like, know. I Back in those days, they did these, like, cutesy, like, you know, hey, duty, you want to go get a soda pop? Yeah, like, but they weren't like, hey, pooper, want to go to the grocery <laughs> store? Like, I just, I don't understand. Anyways, let's get back to this very, very serious topic. All right, so for duty's sake, we're going to call him HB. Yeah. So HB was born into a pretty well-off family, but apparently things were pretty rough for him growing up. He didn't have that many friends, and the one friend that he did have, a guy named James Freeman, kind of a shady dude. HB was fairly clean-cut. He didn't get a ton of attention at home, and his parents are reported to have given him essentially no physical affection. Basically, they weren't the kind of parents who tucked him in at night and read him a bedtime story. No, it was more like he lived in this nice big house with a bunch of material possessions and had parents who wouldn't even hug him when he was little. That's just wonderful. You love you love to see it. That, that'll build him nice and good, hey? No yeah. kidding. On top of all this, his parents divorced when he was three years old, and he would grow up to be a child who was described as apathetic towards many things. He was also described as a dreamer who loved reading comic books and watching movies. He seemed to be a bit of an average kid. That is, until he started hanging out with James Freeman. James was nothing like HB. He was more of a rebel, and people in town knew him as a troublemaker who was reported to drink and do drugs. Either way, the two got along, and James eventually started to rub off on HB. We do want to mention that James and HB went to the same school and that James also played the trombone in the band as well. HB worked at the movie theater in town and while he was at work, he would regularly see happy couples out on dates. When he was hanging out with James, he would listen to him talk about his views on women. They weren't exactly always kind. James appeared to be pretty well liked by a few of the kids in their school. He was even described in their yearbook as the kind of fellow that everyone likes. He seemed like the kind of kid that like the other kids liked him, but the parents were like, don't hang out with that James. Probably, yeah. It was reported by quite a few sources that HB was also bullied by some of the other kids for being quiet and for his interest in things like comics. He was teased and beaten up on at least one occasion for also being quote-unquote gay. You know what this just reminded me of? Um, maybe not on quite the same level, potentially. We don't know because HB, of course, is a suspect. But it's giving me um, Mary Bell vibes with her and her little friend, how there's like the leader and then Whoa! the follower. Do you know oh what I mean? Oh my god, I 
have been like living, breathing, and eating Texarkana Moonlight Murders for the last like two weeks, and I didn't make that connection. It just because you know you have the You're one so right. that's like the quiet, the introvert, maybe you know the the bit of the outcast, and then you have his friend who is a little more popular, a mm-hmm. little more like outgoing, that takes him under his wing. Sometimes it gets toxic, guys. That's true. And, hey, if you have never heard our Mary Bell episode, it was literally our second one. Go check it out. It's a gnarly one, too. Yeah, it is pretty bad. We went hard, like, right off the bat with this, didn't we? Anyway, back to HB. Many people think that all of this led to HB harboring resentment towards all of the happy people he saw. Was he angry because he felt like he couldn't have that kind of love and happiness in his life? On November 4th, 1948, two years after the attacks in Texarkana, HB took his own life by ingesting rat poison. That's brutal. It's horrible. After he died, a series of instructions were found that led investigators to a suicide note. In that note, HB confessed to the murders of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin. He also confessed to the attack on the Starks that led to the death of Virgil Starks. And I find it interesting that he only confessed to two attacks. Like, why not the other two? I, I, that kind of was something I wanted to figure out and I couldn't really put together. Yeah, they didn't really connect why. Yeah, exactly. And so while I was doing research for this episode, I found an amazing resource. Like, this just blew my mind. So the cousin of H.B. Tennyson, who is Dr. Tennyson, he is a forensic psychiatrist. And he put together a huge collection of information regarding the letters that he wrote, and they really make you think. Because if H.B. Tennyson didn't do this, then I honestly think he may have done something else that was truly terrible. So let's just talk a little bit about these notes from Dr. Tennyson. I spent hours going over this information <laughs> like I won't lie like I was messaging Charlotte while going through it yeah I thought I was I thought I was gonna go crazy like there is a lot of information and it's one of those rabbit holes that you fall into and you just can't get out of there's so much evidence that makes you wonder what the hell actually happened with HB well and we also want to mention that he was incredibly young when he took his life because it was only two years after that's right he was only 18 years old which would have made him only 16 the same age as Paul Martin at the time of the attacks He left behind a note that gave instructions on how to figure out the combination to a lockbox that he purchased recently. And honestly, I'm summarizing this as best as I can because if we didn't do that, we could do an entire series on H.B. Tennyson and what he could or could not have possibly done. Basically, it it was wild because he left behind this one letter and it was a series of clues that people had to solve and figure out in order to get the combination to the lockbox where he hid all the other letters. Like, and is it he was, the fucking Riddler? Right? Like, like, it was just this whole complicated scheme and they found all of these different things kind of hidden throughout his room. And it was just, like, complicated. That's the only word I can use to describe it. Like, it's just, it's a lot. I can't imagine going to all that effort and then taking your own life. It, it seems strange. Do you know what I mean? I do. And it's interesting because it's like, why would you go why? to all that effort when you could have just left a suicide note being like, yep, I did it. I why, mean, why make them, I mean, I guess. If guilt is powerful and he true. seemed to be a pretty theatrical kid with guess, the comics yeah, and the movies. Yeah. So I almost like to me when I was looking at this, it was, did he do this or did he like, read about something similar somewhere or get the idea from something and then wanted to make like do his version of it yeah wanted to have some sort of notoriety or acknowledgement because he wasn't getting acknowledgement i was gonna say wherever this is coming from it's not from a 
mentally healthy place exactly yeah and that's the thing too with hb is like this is a kid yeah right like he's a teenager reading his comics and honestly i mean batman first detective comics came out in the 30s he could have literally been i'm not sure when the riddler was introduced so someone could maybe fact check that for me but he could have been reading these comics right yeah you never know so eventually all of this investigation led to what is now referred to as the confession note being found in his note he stated why did i take my own life well when you committed two double murders you would too Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night, and I killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep, and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. So you hear that, and you're like, oh my god, it has to be this guy. Like, it has to be, right? So why would someone lie about this? Right? (laughs) and again this is just one of many among a larger series of notes that were found an interesting thing that he also said in this note was please disregard all other messages which i have written they are only thoughts which i was thinking about as possible reasons for taking my own life as i think about it it is none of these things like what what sir There was also a claim made that he left behind another message denying the murders, but that claim was then cleared up in 2013. We do want to point out that HB was one of nine people who confessed to these murders. Nine. His family was devastated by the loss, obviously. Uh, He had brothers that knew him really well, and they were questioned by the police soon after the notes were found. So if you'd already made up your mind, HB is my man, here's where things get pretty confusing. Because if you thought all this was going to tie together nicely, then you're going to be very disappointed. Yeah, we don't do that here. (laughs) When his brothers were questioned, they were adamant that there was absolutely no way that HB couldn't have done it. They maintained that he had no clue how to use a gun, let alone use it well enough to kill numerous people. To them, this just didn't seem like something HB was capable of. They also mentioned that in 1946, HB didn't even know how to drive a car and couldn't have possibly driven himself out to the locations that the attacks happened. At the time of his death, he had only had his driver's license for about a year. All of the crimes were committed in areas where the attacker most likely would have needed a vehicle in order to get there. A car was also reported by the survivors of the attacks. We'll also mention that different cars were reported at the crime scene, which led police to believe that the cars could have been stolen. Could this clean-cut teenager who didn't even know how to drive at the time be capable of not only driving to the locations, but actually going out and stealing cars? The police also questioned James Freeman regarding HB. James told them that HB had been with him during the nights of at least the majority of the attacks. And we also want to point out that there's a theory that James Freeman could have been the attacker and that HB was covering for him in the notes, but this is unlikely. Once again, the lack of physical evidence at the crime scenes made it tricky to link a single person to the murders. There was nothing that was found that was proven to belong to the killer other than the flashlight found at the Starks residence. Bloody boot prints were found, among other things, but police couldn't prove that they actually belonged to the killer. And if you remember the state of some of these crime scenes, it probably doesn't surprise you that they couldn't figure out who the boot prints belonged to. There were also some fingerprints found as well, but none of them matched HB or James for that matter. And it is important to mention that prior to his death and the notes being found, HB was never considered a possible suspect. It was believed by 
some that H.B. was highly influenced by the comic books that he was reading, like we mentioned, and the movies he enjoyed. People thought that the overall showmanship of the situation was really strange. In order to find the notes, they had to solve the riddle to get the combination of the lockbox, and it just seemed really unlikely that he was a murderer. They basically blamed the comics for his suicide and for the notes he left, and they moved on from him. Which is funny because... People have always been blaming the media on people's actions, like they blame video games now, they blamed movies before that, and then TV shows, and back in the 40s, they were just using comic books as their scapegoat. Despite this, there are still many who believe that Henry Booker Tennyson could have been responsible for the Texarkana Moonlight murders. Among them is none other than Dr. Tennyson himself, who in 2014 presented his theory and findings in a forum in Texarkana. He stated that Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry were at the movies before they died. Same with Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore. And while Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin did not see a movie before their deaths, Paul was at the theater that evening with some friends. So they all saw movies at the same theater before being attacked with the exception of the Starks. Dr. Tennyson suggests that this pattern tells us that someone affiliated with that theater in some way must have been connected to at least three out of the four attacks. And, of course, we know H.B. worked at this exact theater. And, wait for it. Now, if you're all thinking to yourself, well, the Starks didn't go to the movies before they died, yeah, you're absolutely right. At the time, there was a curfew in effect, so they stayed home. And that removes them from the H.B. Tennyson connection? No, it does not. Katie Starks had a sister who lived in town. Who did she live next door to? James Freeman. Whoa! That shocked me. I mean, take that how you will. You can look that in a way that tells us that all of these people are connected in somewhat of a suspicious way. Or you can also look at the fact that this wasn't a tiny town, but it wasn't also a giant booming metropolis. It is likely that this was just a coincidence. Like we mentioned, James was eventually cleared by the police. Those around him were questioned as well, and they spoke about how James would often use drugs and act in a way towards women that would make others incredibly uncomfortable. Eventually, James moved on. He would marry at some point, but the marriage did not last. He spent the majority of his life living with his mother. He was described as a recluse for the remainder of his days. In 1973, his mother passed away. A little over a year later, James would take his own life. And as for Dr. Tennyson, he states that he does not have an opinion regarding whether or not James was involved, but he does consider it a possibility. And this would be easy peasy if that was the rest of the episode, but there are still more suspects that we have to explore. We mentioned in part one that there is someone who is considered the most likely person to have committed the Texarkana Moonlight murders, and believe it or not, H.B. Tennyson, not that person. We mentioned earlier how when you're exploring a suspect list, you get really almost like carried away with the evidence and you convince yourself that it could be the person that you're currently reading about. But then you look into it more and more and explore other people and it's amazing how many people stick out as viable suspects here. So before we explore the other main suspect in the case, we're just going to go over a few others. These are men who were proven not to be the killer, but were originally explored for some pretty legitimate reason. This brings us to Ralph Bowman. Ralph Bowman was 21 years old when he was questioned by police. He was an ex-army Air Force machine gunner. He alleged that he woke up one day and realized that he'd been in a fugue state for several weeks. The day that he woke up was the day that the Starks were attacked and Virgil Starks was killed. Let's just talk real quickly about what a fugue state is. According to the DSM-5, it's a rare psychiatric phenomenon characterized by reversible amnesia towards one's own identity. This includes memories, personality, and other identifying things about oneself. 
A fugue state can involve wandering or even unplanned travel and has in some cases led to a person to establish new identities without even realizing it. So he claims that when he woke up from this state, the first thing he noticed was that his gun was missing. He also said that he heard the suspect description and realized that it sounded a lot like him. This convinced him that he committed the murders during the fugue state and had forgotten that it all happened. This freaked him out so much that he ran away to Los Angeles. He hitchhiked all the way there, believing that he was a murder suspect on the run. When he arrived in LA on May 23rd, he turned himself into the police and explained why he thought he was the phantom. He claimed, I am my own suspect. He was arrested for the murders, but when he was questioned further, his story began to fall apart. It turned out that he was discharged from the American Air Force for his mental health issues, and that he had once confessed to killing three people in Texarkana over the course of three days. This was also proven to not be true. Remember, when they started putting information out, they got 100 false leads. This is one of those kind of situations. Ralph Bowman was not the first person to claim that he was the Texarkana Phantom, and he certainly would not be the last. On May 7th, a driver picked up a man who was hitchhiking. The man got in his car, and after they'd been driving for a little bit, he pulled a gun out and ordered him to give him all of his valuables and get out of the car. The hitchhiker threatened to kill the driver and claimed that he had already killed five people in Texarkana. He named Paul Martin, Betty Jo Booker, as his victims. He also told the driver that he was not finished killing people and that he could be next if he didn't listen to him. So we don't even actually know who this man was. The carjacking was reported to the police who stated that they were pretty doubtful that this could be the killer. The killer had gone out of his way numerous times to hide his identity. He also, with the exception of some survivors, appeared to not want to leave witnesses alive. He also made sure that no physical evidence was found at any of the scenes other than him leaving his flashlight likely by accident. What we're saying is that we have every reason to believe that this killer was extremely careful and at least relatively organized. Does this sound like someone who would get into a car and confess to someone that he killed the victims by name? Well, and especially when he made his first attack, he was wearing his pillowcase or whatever on his head, and then to hop into someone's vehicle to show his face and be like, yeah, yeah, it's me. Yeah. Mm -mm. Doesn't, Doesn't track. If you also don't think it was this guy, then you're not alone. Eventually, it was agreed that this was the most likely just a carjacker who was trying to intimidate the driver and not actually the killer. Also, at 6 a.m. on May 7th, the body of another man was found. This time, it was the body of Earl Cliff McSpadden. He was found near Ogden on the Kansas City Southern Railway tracks, which was around 26 kilometers away from Texarkana. The body was found on the tracks, and the left arm and leg had been severed by a train less than a half hour prior to him being found. The death was reported as death at the hands of persons unknown, as it was determined that the man was already dead when he had been placed on the tracks. This led many to believe that Earl McSpadden was possibly the sixth victim of the Texarkana Phantom, and his murder remains unsolved to this day. There are others that do not believe this. Apparently, there's a rumor that Earl McSpadden could have been the Phantom himself and that he took his own life by jumping in front of a train. Again, gnarly way to go. Yeah, really, that's rough. And I mean, there's always going to be rumors like this, especially when people are so desperate for answers. Like, you have to remember, people were terrified. Yeah. Most people in the town probably didn't want to believe that there could be another attacker out there, so it was almost a coping mechanism to say that this was the killer, and that everything was going to be okay from now on because he was dead. As it stands, Earl McSpadden is considered an unrelated homicide victim. On May 8th, it was reported that there was yet another suspect being considered. 
This time, a German prisoner of war who had escaped was being actively hunted by authorities. Police were very close to finding him and shared his description to those in town. He was described as a stocky, 24-year-old German man who weighed around 190 pounds and had blue eyes and brown hair. It was reported that he had stolen a vehicle in Mount Ida, Arkansas, and that he attempted to buy guns and ammunition in several other towns. I would hazard a guess that this soon after World War II, anyone speaking with a German accent would not have been welcomed with open arms. Especially in Texas. Oh, yeah. Police were adamant to find him, but ultimately he was never seen again. They stated that he vanished into thin air. This makes me wonder if he actually got away or if some Texan vigilante took it upon themselves to just uh, deal with it in their own way. Right? Completely. And, so to bring it to the other side of the battle, a World War II veteran named Emmett Daniels was also considered a suspect for a little bit. Ooh, this guy. He's a, he's a real doozy. While Emmett Daniels was not considered a suspect for very long, he was still kind of a piece of shit human being. Seriously, so he was involved in something called the Lipok Massacre in Germany in 1945, and we do want to offer up a quick little content warning for this. On April 22nd, the 12th Armored Division of the U.S. Army killed 36 prisoners of war and were alleged to have sexually assaulted over 20 women. Emmett was alleged to have sexually assaulted two women himself, and one of the attacks bore a huge resemblance to the attack on Mary Jean Larry. Meaning that he committed the assault with a gun. Disgusting. We mean it when we say this wasn't exactly a good guy. He also beat three soldiers to death, which I mean, that takes a lot of rage. Yep. He was also accused of multiple sexual assaults, as well as strangling a civilian German woman to death. So, like I said, piece of shit. Yikes. Fucking hell. All in all, while some of the details regarding Emmett Daniels' crimes do bear resemblance to the Texarkana murders in some ways, it was concluded that he was likely not to be the killer. So he was a horrific human being. Oh my god, yeah. Just not the horrific human being that they were looking for. Oh, man. On May 10th, in Atoka, Oklahoma, a woman was attacked by a man who broke into her home. He appeared unhinged and was ranting and raving during the attack. He told her that he didn't care if she lived or died and that he may as well kill her because he had already killed three to four people. He threatened to sexually assault the woman, but he instead panicked and fled. Police searched desperately for this man. They enlisted the help of 20 officers and over 160 residents came out to help too. They all believed that this could be the Phantom. Less than 48 hours later, a man was arrested. Upon questioning, it was determined that he could not have committed the murders due to the fact he was not in Texarkana at the time of the Stark murders. Honestly, it's no wonder they had a hard time tracking down who the killer was. It looks like there was a lot happening there around this time. Like we mentioned in part one, World War II had just ended. This led to the return of many men who were horrifically changed by the war. Many of them had problems finding jobs, and their struggles with mental health made it difficult for a lot of them to return to regular life. Um, so my parents are actually both veterans of the army. My mom was an army nurse, my dad was infantry, and my dad, we once had a conversation about um, men returning from war, especially after World War II, because in those days, PTSD was not a thing. Yeah. I mean, they called it shell shock, but it was more of... They kind of understood that it was the trauma of what people had seen, but people paid no mind to it. And when your body, as anyone with PTSD will attest to, when it's been through something horrific, like six years of constant war, when you come back to peacetime again, your body can't shut off that level of stress. 
And, like, in the UK, men were coming back and, like, normally chill family guys who would never get any trouble were, like, going out and getting in bar fights and stuff because they just couldn't calm down or rest their minds properly after they came back because there was no help for people in those days no absolutely so like i can totally see an american veteran of world war ii coming back from war and cracking because there was no help for guys in those days and and we kind of talked about this in part one but we did see this with the hinder kaifek murders Mm -hmm. as well where it wasn't world war ii but men had come back from war and basically no one was having a good time yeah no they were very disillusioned with the whole thing you know and some of them whether it was mentally maimed or physically maimed you know like some people came back with arms and legs and eyes and everything else missing right so you could see how this would make someone snap and when all the men came back this led to an increase in population in texarkana people from all over moved to the area due to the new factories that had opened and of course an increase in population can often result in an increase in crime which is interesting to see because when the attacks first started happening people were almost like in denial that something like this could happen where they lived they couldn't believe that someone capable of something this heinous could live among them. So this brings us to our final suspect, a man named Ewell Swinney. Ewell. I loved the name Ewell. Like, you almost had to say it with a bit of a southern accent. Ewell. Yeah, I'm Ewell. I'm Ewell Swinney. And <laughs> he has an interesting name, but he's just an interesting guy. Oh, that he is. Ewell Swinney was born on February 9th, 1917 in Cleveland County, Arkansas. His father was a minister, and he grew up in a very religious home. However, this didn't stop him from becoming a well-known criminal. He would mostly commit crimes regarding counterfeiting and stealing cars. So basically, property-related crimes in an attempt to make money for himself. Was he capable of killing four people and leaving two alive but terribly hurt? This is another one of those suspects where everything about it just makes you question how on earth it couldn't be him. So basically, how everything started with Yule was that he hadn't paid his rent and owed some money to the man that owned the house. The man called the police regarding him owing him money and then gave him the license plate number to the car that Yule was driving. The police ran the plates to check if it was stolen. Yule, like we mentioned, was a well-known car thief. So the cops ran the plates and saw that not only was the car stolen, it had been reported stolen on the same weekend that Richard and Pollyanne were murdered. They questioned his family, and they told the police that Yule had a favorite parking lot where he liked to park his car and just hang out. So the police, in an unmarked car, went to that area, and lo and behold, the car was there. Yule, however, was not. The police decided to park off to the side and wait and see if he showed up. They waited for a few days, but they didn't see him. The car remained unclaimed, and it appeared at first that it had been abandoned. One day, to the cop's surprise, a woman got into the police car and introduced herself as Peggy Lois Stevens Tresnick Swinney. That's a frickin' mouthful. Oh, yeah. She told them that she had married Ewell that very day. And this is an interesting little twist, because by law, in their state, a woman cannot testify against her husband in court. So the fact that they had just gotten married and then she just showed up to talk to the police was a little interesting. Peggy was taken into police custody in relation to the car being stolen. Police hoped that eventually her new husband would show up to bail her out, but he didn't. Just leaves her there. Yeah, he was like, go, go talk to those cops, Peggy. Yeah, hey, new wife, get out of here. Yeah, don't worry about it. On July 15th, just about two weeks later, Ewell was arrested by an undercover detective for trying to sell a stolen car to a dealership. The police now had both him and Peggy under the charges of car theft. 
The police noted that when they went to arrest Swinney, he reacted more dramatically than they expected him to. They just kind of thought that he would go relatively peacefully, because at the end of the day, he was being arrested for a stolen car and not for really anything else. But he absolutely flipped. And they actually had to chase him down. Like, he flipped out and he started running. So before they arrested him, they're chasing him. Not only that, when they actually caught him, they asked him why he was running so much. Why are you running? Why are you running? He responded, You got me from more than stealing cars. And then he asked if he was going to be put to death. The police were basically like, why would we put you to death for stealing cars? And then he started arguing with them about how they knew more. Like, was he also on drugs? Right? Like, sir, keep your mouth shut. Right? And I mean, not to encourage yeah, the don't criminals. Work. Yeah. But like, is he dumb? I don't understand. When Peggy found out that he had been arrested and was being held under suspicion of murder, she exclaimed, <gasps> How did they find it out? It also turned out, upon further questioning, that most of Peggy's family thought that he was the Phantom. So this was no, like, criminal mastermind Obviously duo by any not. means here. No, there's no Bonnie and Clyde. No. So all of this was when Peggy began talking. And Peggy sure had a lot to say. Peggy told the police in detail about how Yule was the Phantom. While she had a lot to say, police did notice that her story would change a lot. They believed that she could possibly be withholding information from them due to being afraid of Yule or just not wanting to get herself in trouble. Peggy was able to tell them where Yule had disposed of some of the victim's things. Police investigated the area and found the missing items where she said they would be. This was huge. You had the wife of this guy straight up saying it was him. Not only that, she was able to tell them where he hid the items and then was proved to be right. The police thought that they had their man and they had someone who would possibly testify against him in court. Unfortunately, Peggy completely recanted her confession. The police tried to convince her to change her mind, but she absolutely refused. Because she was married to Ewell, she was not required to testify against him in court if she did not want to, and because she did refuse, they couldn't really do much about it. The police spent six months looking through her confession, and the more time that they spent exploring it, the more things they found to make them believe that it was Ewell. Due to the lack of physical evidence and the lack of a confession now from both Peggy and Ewell, they didn't have much to go off of. If they had had the confession from Peggy, they most certainly would have had a solid case against Ewell, but without it, they were screwed and Ewell Swinney was never charged for a single murder. That didn't mean that he didn't commit any crimes, though. Ewell was sentenced to serve time for a series of car thefts that he had committed, and due to state laws, he was given a life sentence due to the fact that he was a repeat offender. He was released in 1973 after filing an appeal for not being properly represented in court. Yul Swinney died in 1994 in a Dallas nursing home. Max Tackett and Tillman Johnson, who were two of the lead investigators in the case, believed until the day that they died that Yul Swinney was the Texarkana Phantom. And a book published in 2014 also claims that he was the killer. To this day, when it comes to this case, the majority of people believe that the true Texarkana Phantom was indeed Yul Swinney. Unfortunately, this case is no longer being investigated. I mean, it happened so long ago, we can't really expect for them to keep it open. So as far as it stands, we can speculate on who the killer was, but we will most likely never know the full truth. So much for, like, a deathbed confession or anything. Right? So that's the story of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. It's still considered by many to be unsolved, and it's definitely one of the most horrifying cases we have covered to date. 
unsolved case episodes are always so difficult to finish and set aside because at the end of the day, when we look at terrible people who basically got away with murder or are out living free when they really shouldn't be, at least we usually know where they are. There's that sense of closure for sure, and with cases like this, we're just not going to get that. So what are your thoughts, Dina? I think at the end of the day, it was most likely Yule Swinney. Like, when I first started researching, I really thought for a bit that it could be H.B. Tennyson, especially when I found all the evidence presented by Dr. Tennyson, his cousin. Like, it was, like, eight to 900 pages there, worth There of was a like, lot. It was I, insane. Yeah. The more I think about Yule, the more I'm convinced that it had to have been him. H.B. was young, and not to say that young people can't do bad things, but it just makes so much more sense that it would be a career criminal rather than what seemed like a pretty misunderstood and troubled kid. What do you think? I think the suspects in this case almost remind me of the Black Dahlia suspect lineup. Like, they're kind of all over the place, but they're each notable and interesting and convincing in their own way. That being said, you will really... He seems like our man to me. I mean... But then you read through all the others, and like you say, you convince yourself oh, that like this is our mm-hmm. guy. I don't, I don't think it was HB. I think he was a kid who needed some help in a time when there wasn't really any help to be had. Obviously, not coming from his parents. But I think potentially there's that chance that it could have just been someone who was missed or was never even a suspect to begin with. Because in those days it would have been far easier to get away with murder. To change your name, move to a different state, or even a different country wouldn't have been the near impossible task it would have been today. So like, they could have been like, all right, we're gonna kill people and like, deuces, going to Europe where it's all destabilized, you'll never see me again. And the thing too, I mean, if this killer was so good at not leaving physical evidence, he he had to have been intelligent in some way. Yeah, absolutely. So the likelihood that he could have just fucked right off never to be seen or heard from again it's not impossible no or i think i mentioned it in uh part one for all we knew like uh you briefly mentioned the zodiac killer there was potentially a tie to that like for all we know he moved to a different state continued to kill people killed a few more people moved states because at that this time it's definitely proved like we see time and time again that the police and law enforcement and the fbi and the texas rangers do not communicate they don't work well together don't play good and the thing is too i mean let's say hypothetically whoever did this let's call him 25 years old at the time of the murders to make it simple if he left to go to another state he had the rest of his life yep to go and do whatever the fuck he wanted so who knows maybe it was someone that got away yeah and if he was like a single man which he probably was Mm -hmm. it's not like he had like a wife to leave behind or like you know like something like that the wife would have been like oh yeah jimmy left for cigarettes and hasn't come back yeah exactly kind of suspicious he took his pillowcase with the holes in the eyes like (laughs) i don't know where he went yeah and in the south well in the south in those days maybe lots of people were using pillowcases oh yep okay that is very very so So, i mean he could have just disappeared who knows and honestly we want to know what you guys think like who do you think it could have been because there's a few different people here that really make you think, and Charlotte really brought up a good point in saying that, like, 
the the guy who did this might not even be on the list. He may not have even been no. on their radar. Like he could have been that good that he just completely got away with it. Or it could have happened where this guy did a bunch of stuff and then got hit, hit by a bus the next day and that was it, right? True. Like, or maybe, like I mentioned before, with, like, Texas vigilante justice, yeah. maybe some person figured out who it was and was like, all right, you little fucker. I'm police deal aren't with dealing you. with it, so I'll deal with exactly. it. Exactly. That was a wild ride, you guys. This <laughs> case absolutely is fascinating for so many different reasons. It, it's one of those cases where you just can't stop thinking about it or reading about it. At least that's how it is for me. Yeah, absolutely. And if you guys want to go check it out, there is plenty, plenty of information to uh, clap your eyes on. Don't say we didn't warn you. Like, get the corkboard, bring the red <laughs> string, like, we're all doomed. Well, with summer winding down, we have some big news headed your way, and we can't wait to share it with yeah. you. Stay tuned. We doing things. We sure are. Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. We are also on Facebook. Yes, we sure are. There. You can also find each of us on social media. I'm ominous underscore walrus on Twitter and ominous walrus on Instagram. And I'm Dina V on Twitch, Dina V IG on Instagram, and Dina V tweets on Twitter. Join us every Saturday for our new episode. We also do a live premiere on YouTube at 12 p.m. MST on Saturdays. So come hang out with us and discuss the case in real time. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube, like right now. If you haven't already, get your asses in there, hit that subscribe button. Yeah, we, we'd really appreciate it. We've become those people that are like smash that like button hey thank you guys as always for listening this has been the, the grim, grim curriculum, curriculum.